Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. I'm Michael Adams and welcome to Season 5 of Forgotten Australia. This month marks the third anniversary of this podcast, and since launching, I've produced about 100 hours of audio based on scripts totaling about 1 million words. It's been a lot of work, but it's been a fantastic experience, and I want to thank you for making it possible by listening, by telling friends and family about the show, and for taking the time to give Forgotten Australia a rating and a review. Thanks also to Ancestry.com.au and my podcast platform Acast for their terrific ongoing support. And a special shout out to Patreon supporters. Your contributions aren't going on beer and pizza. They're being used to pay for archival access, academic reports, magazines, books and DVDs, pretty much anything to make Forgotten Australia as accurate, detailed and colourful as possible. This first episode of Season 5, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile, is a good example. For starters, the story was suggested by listener Greg L and I'm immensely grateful because it's a fascinating true crime tragedy. Contributor support made it possible for me to get hold of the digitised original police files from the Western Australian Archives. We're talking 2,500 pages of telegrams, handwritten notes and typewritten reports from 1926, and they really take us behind the scenes into the investigation and the court proceedings. Through Season 5, I'll be bringing you more deep dives based on research material made possible by Patreon support. One's about Australia's first flying saucer investigator, whose story was found recently in declassified MI5 files that I had digitised by the British National Archives. Another episode, about one of our most polarising political figures, is being written with reference to half a dozen dusty old books that have been shipped from all over the world. 
So if you want to help out with this sort of research, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia or click the link in the show notes. As a thank you, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode of Forgotten Australia. You'll also get picture galleries where you can see some of the files I was talking about, and there's also a lot of other supporter goodies, including exclusive bonus episodes. Forgotten Australia is produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting, and on with Season 5. It's just after 8 in the morning on Wednesday the 28th of April 1926 and at Boulder, south of Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, two men are riding out of town on their bicycles. Both are pretty well known around these parts. The older gent, grey hair, bushy moustache, slender frame in a grey suit, is Detective Inspector John Joseph Walsh. He's offsider, a little younger, with receding dark hair, narrower moustache and a sturdy physique in dark clothes, is his partner, Detective Sergeant Alexander Pittman. These two men have given over half a century to the Western Australian Police Force, and more than half of that has been here on the goldfields. John Walsh and Alexander Pittman comprise the district's gold-stealing detection staff, and what they do, they do in secret. That's the only way to arrest men who deal in stolen ore and extract gold treatment plants that are hidden in the bush. These thieves have eyes and ears everywhere. If they get a whiff that Walsh and Pittman are sniffing around, they'll go to ground. To convict these crooks, the detectives need to catch them in the act. That's what they're hoping to do this morning. The weather's mild and it's been raining a little recently so it's wet underfoot, but still, that's better than it being stinking hot when you have to ride a long way and then maybe spend hours on a stakeout in the saltbush and spinifex. Walsh and Pittman have been partners on the gold-stealing staff for the past six years, and they've been colleagues for decades. The men have different but complementary personalities. They're not quite good cop, bad cop, but they're also not far from it. Walsh takes a more generous view of his fellow men, which wins him the respect and even begrudging affection of the criminal underworld on the goldfields. Pittman, though, is more of a hardliner, and that's earned him the enmity of a few enemies. While their approaches differ, the detectives have much in common personally and professionally. Both are family men with wives and children living in Perth. Both are dedicated, hard-working, and enjoy reputations of utter incorruptibility. Both are a little long in the tooth for their physically demanding jobs. Pittman is now 53, Walsh is 64 and due to retire in a few months, so this mission will be one of their last. The two men ride through Boulder on their bikes and head off into the bush to catch some bad guys. Walsh doesn't return to his simple cottage in Kalgoorlie that night, and neither does Pittman go back to his little place in Boulder. Neither man checks in at the police station in Kalgoorlie either. They're not seen or heard from the next day, or the day after that. No one has a clue where they are or when they'll be back. Yet this isn't unusual. Walsh and Pittman sometimes stay out for days doing their secret work. But when more than a week passes without word, their colleagues can't help but worry. They've never been out this long. On Saturday the 8th of May, Kalgoorlie's Detective Inspector Henry Spedding Smith sends a telegram to the Police Commissioner in Perth. It reads, quote, 
Inspector Walsh and Sergeant Pittman left with bicycles 27th Ultimo. Destination not known. Have not returned. Am anxious. Upon receiving this telegram, the commissioner sends a trio of detectives east on that night's train. By the next morning in Perth, the Sunday Times has the story under the headline, Sensation in Kalgoorlie, Two Well-Known Detectives Missing. The article comes with the chilling words, Grave fears are being entertained for their safety. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the five-part Forgotten Australia episode, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. Coolgardie was Western Australia's first gold rush town after a find was made there in 1892. Kalgoorlie, though, came hot on its heels with gold discovered there the next year. The new town and its near neighbour Boulder soon eclipsed Coolgardie and by 1898 they had a population of over 2,000, with this more than tripling in the five years that followed. By that time, the mines on half a dozen leases around the original find had been dubbed the Golden Mile, even though the area they covered was actually larger than that. This was the richest place on earth. But a huge influx of fortune hunters also brought men who didn't want to play by the rules. In the first decade of the 20th century, there was a gold-stealing free-for-all on the Golden Mile. This situation was exposed in May 1906 by J.E. Scantlebury, the editor of the British Australasian newspaper, who went to the goldfields to investigate. Scantlebury reported that illicit gold was a massive industry. Pinching ore from the mines had come to be regarded as a victimless crime and as a miner's privilege. A policy of harsh and silence was backed by apathetic authorities. But it wasn't just a few fellas making a few pounds here and there. Ore was being systematically taken by miners who funneled it to so-called gentleman thieves. They'd either dump it in dummy mines where it could be found and processed legitimately, or they'd use illicit treatment plants located in homes and in bush camps to do that work. Either way, the gentleman thieves were making astronomical illegal profits. Scantlebury's sensational claims included that one in every three ounces of gold being sold in Western Australia had been stolen. In an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald, he said detection was discouraged, convictions were vanishingly rare, and serious punishments virtually unheard of. Losses, he said, were upwards of £1 million sterling annually. Simply adjusted for inflation, that's about $240 million Australian dollars today. Scandlebury said that the rot went right to the top. That was because gold could be sold by anyone, no questions asked, and the Perth Mint was the biggest fence for this operation. Scantlebury's story was written off in some quarters as scandalous, sensationalist tosh. But he had to be taken seriously when he was backed up by Kalgoorlie Detective Sergeant Peter Kavanagh. Kavanagh was ordered to conduct an official investigation. He didn't have to do much digging because he knew what was going on. Kavanagh told the press, quote, I know of men here with enormous banking accounts who live in the lap of luxury. If they were called upon to say truthfully how they did it, they would be wanting in a reply. They live solely on stolen gold. Kavanagh didn't think it was quite a million quid a year, but he reckoned it wasn't far off, saying he could cite numerous cases to prove stolen gold ran into hundreds of thousands of ounces a year. A royal commission into this scandal was held in September 1906 and it made press all over Australia. Peter Kavanagh was the star witness, and he was supported by the evidence given by then Detective Sergeant John Walsh. 
Walsh at that stage had been in charge of Kalgoorlie's CID from March 1904 to June 1905. Walsh told the Royal Commission that he and his men had made continual searches, discovered six or seven gold treatment plants and brought numerous people before the court but had barely made a dent in the business. Walsh said he'd been offered huge bribes, including one by a man he thought was a friend, and he'd reported these to his superiors. Walsh told of one man who'd arrived in Kalgoorlie with a few pounds in the bank, buying a house outright with cash just a few months later. The Royal Commission heard that the top-end gentleman thieves were banking thousands or even tens of thousands of unexplained pounds every year. Two chaps, just before they left the goldfields, had boasted of making £40,000 each. A man named Hugh Mackay, who was under investigation at this time, went before the Royal Commission and was asked to account for £28,000 worth of gold he'd sold in the past two years. His response, quote, At the present juncture, I do not wish to make any explanation. But by the time the Royal Commission was held, he was in the minority. Many of the gentlemen thieves had gotten away with it clean as a whistle and had used their stolen fortunes to set themselves up as legitimate businessmen in Perth and in eastern capital cities. To break the illegal industry, in October 1907, the gold-stealing detection staff was established in Kalgoorlie. Peter Kavanagh, who'd been promoted to sub-inspector, would be in charge of six officers, and these included a plainclothes constable named William Kurtzfeld and a uniformed constable named Henry Manning. It wasn't long before they were joined by another constable, Alexander Pittman. Shining such a powerful light on the gold trade had done much to send the gentleman thieves scurrying, and it made miners think twice about pocketing ore to sell in pubs to smaller operators. Other reforms also helped enormously. Miners now didn't walk in and out in the clothes they worked in, but instead donned their underground clobber in change rooms. Managers and shift bosses also had the power to search them, and police had the ability to search dummy mines that were used to stockpile stolen ore. Over the next 15 years, the gold-stealing staff had so much success in curbing the trade that their numbers were reduced to just two men, Inspector John Walsh and Detective Sergeant Alexander Pittman. John Walsh was born to farmers in County Limerick, Ireland, on St Valentine's Day, 1862. He'd reportedly gone to school with Daniel Mannix, later to be Melbourne's famously fiery Catholic Archbishop. John Walsh had been a good athlete and a bright student. After school, he went to Queen's College in Cork to study medicine. He did about two years of the degree, but around 1881 moved to Liverpool to go into the produce business. Walsh emigrated to Townsville in Queensland in 1884 and joined the colony's police force. He moved to Western Australia in 1891 and became a constable. At the start of the gold rush, Walsh was a mounted trooper at York and Beverley, often serving as a gold escort from Southern Cross. In 1894, he was transferred to Coolgardie, where he was in charge of the first police station. Three years later, Walsh was in Perth, working as a detective, and in 1900 was promoted to first-class rank and put in charge of the Fremantle office. That year, he married Mary Newell, and they were to have three sons by 1907. In 1908, now a detective sergeant, Walsh was in Kalgoorlie and had charge of the gold-stealing detective staff. Four years later, he was made a sub-inspector and put in charge of Perth's CID. In 1916, he was promoted to inspector and in August 1920 was transferred back to Kalgoorlie to take control of the CID and the gold-stealing staff. By 1923, though, the staff had been reduced to just Walsh and Pittman. 
Alexander Pittman was born in 1872 in Dunley, Victoria, and he'd come to Western Australia and joined the police force in 1898. His first wife died in childbirth, and he would marry Mary Fitzgerald in 1901, and they'd also have three children, a son and two daughters. Pittman served almost his entire career on the goldfields. Like Walsh, he enjoyed a reputation for being incorruptible. An old gold thief, long since turned respectable Perth businessman, would say that back in the day he'd been busted by Pittman and had offered him a bribe of £100 to leave him be and let him finish his gold smelting. This crim lamented, quote, but there was nothing going. Another time, this same bloke and his crooked mates had sent bottles of wine and whiskey to Pittman's house. Another lament, quote, he smashed the full bottles. Pittman was unassailable with bribes. I believe there was not enough money in Australia to buy him. This old crook also said, with a touch of admiration, that Pittman was as strong as a bull and could fight like steam. As the Daily News put it, Pittman always went out armed, was a crack shot, and was, quote, in the language of the tough, a nasty man to handle in a row. In the early 1920s, Walsh and Pittman's families moved back to Perth. Their children were growing up, needed better schooling and adult opportunities. So each detective lived by himself. Walsh was in that simple cottage in Kalgoorlie and Pittman in similarly modest digs in Boulder. Spreading themselves out like this also allowed them to keep a better eye out for suspicious activity. One thing they were on the lookout for was men driving around in the dead of night. In 1926 in the goldfields, there really wasn't much reason to be out in the bush after dark. Unless, of course, you were processing stolen ore. Walsh and Pittman made a lot of their busts around daybreak, when crooks were tired, their guards were down, and they were coming out of the bush with recently smelted gold. At the end of January 1924, Walsh made his handwritten annual report to Inspector Stephen Condon of the CID and it really gives us a good idea of what he and Pittman were up to. Quote, The principal work of the staff consisted of systematic supervision of premises occupied by those who were reasonably suspected of being concerned in illicit gold. Walsh furnished a list of the offenders convicted during the year and proudly noted, quote, We have not launched a prosecution in which we have been unsuccessful in getting a conviction. Among those they'd nabbed were Frederick Murdoch, who was arrested after information was supplied to Pittman. Murdoch was convicted in Perth of having 110 ounces of smelted gold. He was fined £25 and ordered to make restitution to the Crown of £333. Then there was Charles Egan, an old offender, who'd been coming out of the bush at daybreak in December 1923 with his horse and cart when he'd been surprised by Walsh and Pittman. He'd bolted, they'd given chase on their bicycles and caught him with 145 ounces of gold. Then they'd followed his tracks back 12 miles through the bush to his smelting plant. There, they found the roasting furnace and more ore cooking, which would yield another 83 ounces. Egan pleaded guilty in January and got six months and was fined 100 pounds. The gold he'd been busted with had been valued at 850 pounds, which is about $70,000 today. Another man, John Sadlier, was busted that same month trying to escape a room at the Ivanhoe gold mine via a secret hole in the wall. He had 56 pounds of ore on him, bearing gold worth 255 pounds, and he got six months. Catching such crooks was tough work. In his report, Walsh said that culprits were always very aware of what he and Pittman were up to, and they made, quote, every conceivable precaution to checkmate our efforts. Of the masterminds behind the operations, he said, quote, 
We know who the geniuses are, but their methods are so subtle that we find it very difficult to bring them within the scope of the law. In his report to Inspector Condon, Walsh praised his partner in crime detection, saying, quote, To Sergeant Pittman, whose never-failing zealousness and perseverance in the discharge of his arduous duties, a great lot of credit is due. He is a most painstaking and thoroughly capable officer, and I submit his untiring efforts to bring offenders to justice are deserving of commendation. Now, on the 8th of May 1926, these two dedicated, long-serving officers were missing. Commissioner of Police Robert Connell decided that the Chief of the CID, Inspector Stephen Condon, would handle the case. He'd actually been there, in Kalgoorlie, when Walsh was last seen. The Commissioner sent Condon east on that evening's train, and he was accompanied by Detective Sergeant Henry Manning, one of the original gold-stealing detection staff members, and Detective Sergeant Michael O'Brien, who was a renowned outback operator. The overnight journey would have given Condon plenty of time to think about the last time he'd seen Walsh. It had been the evening of the 27th, and he'd been at the man's cottage, which also served as his office. Walsh said he'd received a letter from an informant calling himself Jones, and this Jones had asked for a meeting that night at 8.30. Jones apparently had information about a gold-stealing operation. Condon remembered Walsh saying that his and Pittman's next target was a gold-stealing plant south of Boulder. He'd even mentioned the names of a number of suspects. They included previously convicted Charlie Egan, his brother Tom, and their other convicted crookmate, John Sadlier. Walsh had said he thought that they were dangerous men who'd stop at nothing. But in Condon's recollection, Walsh had also mentioned other men by the names of Coulter and Trafine. But he thought that they were being referenced in connection with a different case. As the inspector would soon write in one of his reports to the police commissioner, quote, Knowing Inspector Walsh as I did, and how secretive he was in regard to gold-stealing plants and offenders connected with them, I did not ask for more definite information on the occasion, knowing as I did that he and Pittman were faithful and zealous officers and might well be trusted to carry on without interference or suggestions from me, and I was not the least bit curious or anxious to know more than he cared to tell me. Condon had gone with Walsh out onto the street as he'd left to meet this Jones character. It had been cold and wet, so they'd gone back to the cottage for Walsh to get his overcoat. After meeting with the informant Jones, Walsh had been planning to stake out a location at Boulder. But with the weather the way it was, he didn't think there'd be much gold smelting happening in the bush that night. So he'd abandoned that plan and told Condon he'd see him tomorrow at 9am. Next morning though, Walsh hadn't shown. Condon had gone to his cottage, but Walsh wasn't there and the door was locked. He figured the man was out on surveillance and that he'd see him later. But Walsh didn't show before Condon left for Perth on the train that night. The chief inspector wasn't concerned. No doubt Walsh and Pittman were off on one of their secret missions. What did haunt Condon though now was something that Walsh had said when they'd last seen each other. Some time ago, Walsh hadn't been in the best of health and Condon had asked him if he was feeling fit and strong again. Walsh had given a curious reply, quote, Oh yes, I'm alright now, but somehow I have a feeling that I have not got long to live. Condon, Manning and O'Brien arrived in Kalgoorlie early on Sunday afternoon. They met Inspector Spedding Smith and went to the detective office. The question, were Walsh and Pittman missing or just out on an extended mission? The latter, unfortunately, didn't seem likely. 
If Walsh and Pittman had intended on going out into the bush for such a long time, surely they would have arranged for the remittance of their fortnightly pay to their wives in Perth. Everything else also pointed to their disappearances. Constable Alger Pite, another former member of the gold-stealing staff, now on general duties in Kalgoorlie, told the Perth officers that when he hadn't seen Pittman for four days, he'd wondered where he was. Pite had gone to his cottage and looked through the window. As he'd say in his statement, quote, I noticed his bedding left as though he'd left in a hurry. It was always customary for him to make his bed and keep his camp tidy. The next day, Pite had decided to call up Walsh and see what he knew. But he was told the inspector had also been absent for a few days. This reassured Pite, quote, Hearing that they were both away, I concluded they were both together and that they would be all right. Kalgoorlie Detective Sergeant Michael McGinty told Condon he'd gone out to Walsh's cottage on a similar mission. Like Pite, he'd looked through the window and saw the bed was unmade. McGinty had returned a few times and saw that nothing had moved or changed. Condon now ordered them to force Walsh's window in Kalgoorlie. When they did, it was clear he hadn't been there for nearly two weeks. Newspapers and letters pushed under the door had accumulated, and the place looked much as Condon had last seen it. Walsh had returned from his supposed meeting with Informer Jones because his overcoat was hung up neatly, and the bed looked like it had been slept in. That suggested that he'd left on the morning of the 28th. What seemed clear was that he hadn't planned on going away for any length of time at all. If he had, he would have made his bed and tidied up and taken some supplies. Walsh's gloves and muffler were in the hut, and he would have needed those if he was going to be out in the cold at night. Condon told Detective Sergeants Manning and O'Brien and Constable Pite to go break into Pittman's place in Boulder. When they did, they saw that everything was as it had been when Pite had looked through the window. In the cottage, they found Pittman's occurrence book, which recorded his daily work movements. He'd typically been on duty from about 5 in the morning until 9 at night. Pittman's records were of him patrolling Kalgoorlie and Boulder, the town's outskirts and its mines, doing office and general duties, and making inquiries about illicit gold dealers. Then there were the outback hunts. On the 21st of April, he recorded, quote, 5am to 8.30pm. Patrolling bush south of Boulder and in vicinity of Celebration City, searching for an illicit gold treatment plant. He'd made his last entries on the 27th. He noted surveillance in the early morning and then usual office and patrol duties until 5pm. After that, nothing. The lack of detail in this work diary, no names, no locations, was so that if anyone broke in, they wouldn't know who Pittman and Walsh had in their sights. Of course, this secrecy now meant their colleagues had little to go on. An anonymous tipster, a general direction, and a trail that had been cold for nearly two weeks. Faced with this, Inspector Condon sent a wire to Perth. He asked that Detective Sergeant Grenville Purdue be sent, along with other constables. Condon believed that Purdue was the man to lead the investigation. Perhaps fittingly, he'd been born in that great gold city of Ballarat in 1875. Purdue had knocked about farms and stations in Victoria and New South Wales before coming to Western Australia in 1902. He joined the force then and shortly afterwards was in Kalgoorlie to stamp out Sly Grog. In 1904, he was promoted to plainclothes detective with the CID in Perth. Three years later, he was back with the Kalgoorlie CID, working with Pittman and Walsh and with other gold-stealing staff members such as William Kurtzfeld and Henry Manning. 
During the war, Perdue served as a detective with military intelligence in Egypt and England, where he reputedly learned much about detecting from sluice at Scotland Yard. Returning from the war, he was promoted to detective sergeant with the Perth CID. A couple of years back, Perdue had been in all the papers for solving the murder of a taxi driver whose body had been found floating in Crawley Bay. So, not only did he know the missing men well and have much experience in how the goldfields operated, Perdue was also on a career high as a murder policeman. If, God forbid, it should come to that. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On Monday, before Purdue arrived, Condon sent Manning, O'Brien, Constable Alexander Goldie and two Aboriginal trackers searching south of Boulder. From his recollection of his conversation with Walsh, and from what Pittman's diary had recorded, this was the best lead they had. But of course, if that mysterious informant Jones had information about a gold plant somewhere else, they might be looking in the wrong place entirely. Even if they were headed in the right direction, the potential search area was enormous. Hundreds of square miles and thousands of abandoned mines. Under normal circumstances, finding the right footprints and bike tyre tracks would be difficult. But making things tougher was that there had been five points of rain since the 28th of April and many days of strong winds. Inspector Condon spoke to a reporter for the Daily News. He said it was unlikely that Walsh and Pittman were lost in the bush. Both men knew the country well. He expressed the hope that their secret work had simply taken them farther afield than usual and they were yet to return. But Condon told the reporter he considered the situation very grave and he asked for anyone who knew anything to come forward. The search party returned to Kalgoorlie that night without having found any trace of the missing men. The town was buzzing. As the Kalgoorlie miner reported the next morning, quote, The disappearance of the two detectives was discussed in every nook and corner of Kalgoorlie and Boulder during yesterday, and dozens of different theories were advanced towards the solving of the mystery. Surely if they'd gone out farther than usual, to St Ives, to Celebration, or even to Norsemen, they would have been seen and reported by now. In the unlikely event that they'd become lost, then little hope could be held for the men because it had now been so long and the past few nights had been so cold. The Kalgoorlie miner said that the detective's work had often involved going into old mines, so perhaps they'd fallen victim to a rotten ladder or to overwhelming toxic gas. But the darkest theory doing the rounds was that they'd been murdered by illicit gold dealers. The newspaper reported that such crooks had been heard to say that if they ever got the opportunity, they'd kill the detectives. Yet the Kalgoorlie miner found it difficult to believe that locals could carry out a deliberate ambush and assassination. Quote, Walsh and Pittman may have come across some plant where gold was in the process of being treated. They may have rushed the plant, and as soon as they were seen, one of the workers at the plant might have fired, wounding, or perhaps even killing one of the detectives. Then, the paper supposed, realising what they'd done, and that they'd hang if the other detective lived to tell the tale, he'd been killed too. If that was the case, the Kalgoorlie mine amused, then the murderers really had the upper hand. They'd had nearly two weeks to cover their tracks. 
They might even be long gone by now. As locals were reading this report, Purdue arrived and was greeted at Kalgoorlie Station by Condon. Maybe Purdue would be able to help crack what the Daily News called a wall of blank silence from those who were involved in the gold-stealing fraternity. But ordinary citizens, they wanted to help any way they could. A boulder miner named Hercules Brooks would come forward to say he'd seen the detectives riding out of the town just after 8 on the morning of the 28th. They'd been heading south. So this last confirmed sighting indicated that the search was being conducted in the right direction. The Chamber of Mines and the Mines Department made motor cars available to the police. Townspeople volunteered to join the search and scores of people were out in their own private vehicles looking for any sign of the detectives. Condon spoke to reporters at 12 noon on Tuesday. He told them, I fear the worst. Everything points to it. Condon explained how the men's cottages had been left in a hurry. Quote, They evidently had something pretty definite to go on to leave like that. We are absolutely in the dark and really don't know where to look first. Theirs was secret work and they took no one into their confidence. Therefore, we must search and search until something is discovered. That afternoon, a 50-man search party scoured to the south. They didn't find a trace. What they'd hoped to at least find were the bikes. Find those, and for better or worse, the detectives would be nearby. Condon realised that they had to take the search underground. He went to see the chairman of the Chamber of Mines and asked for the services of experienced men who could explore abandoned shafts. The chairman conferred with the membership and he quickly reported back that three miners and all the requisite gear would be ready to start work at nine the next morning. While this was being arranged, a discovery was being made that would give these three miners their first mission. On Tuesday afternoon, Kalgoorlie foundry manager George Brown called on his mate auctioneer Jack Edwards. How about they take George's motor car out for a spin? The men tooled along the Coolgardie Road, southwest of Kalgoorlie. Five miles down, at around 3.30pm, they turned onto a bush track. They stopped about a mile along. Jack Edwards got out and walked towards the mouth of an abandoned mine. As he got closer, he was engulfed in a terrible stench. Something was dead down there, and it had attracted a lot of blowflies that were billowing up from the bottom of the shaft. Edwards peered in, but he couldn't make anything out in the gloom. Maybe it was just a dead animal, but he feared he'd found Walsh and Pittman. By the time Edwards and Brown got back to Kalgoorlie and went to the detective office, it was going on dark. The search would have to be made tomorrow. A restless night ensued, and the next morning, Condon gave the orders. Jack Edwards would guide Purdue, Spedding Smith, O'Brien, and Constable Pite to the site, and a lorry driver would take out three miners. Remarkably, the lead underground man suggested by the Chamber of Mines was Billy Batten. He and Purdue had been schoolmates 35 years earlier in Victoria, and they hadn't seen each other again until that very morning. The party arrived at the shaft known as Miller's Find, adjacent to the old Bell of Kalgoorlie Mine, around 10.30am. A daily news reporter was there too, and wrote the scene was, quote, "...characteristic of the goldfields country." Here and there was an abandoned pit, the landscape studded with stunted gums and saplings, and again, here and there, a broken ridge, grim sentinels of an era that had passed. It was a lonely spot, but there were tracks, seemingly from a spring cart, to and from and around the shaft. 
The police, miners and lorry driver set up a windlass and got their gear ready. They lowered a strong acetylene lamp. By its light they could make out the bottom of the shaft 60 feet down. There they saw galvanised iron which looked twisted and burned. There was also a kettle. A piece of timber that had been part of the mine's collar stood upright as though it had fallen in recently. Billy Batten got ready to make the descent. While he'd been born in Victoria, he'd spent most of his life on the Western Australian goldfields. That he was the man for this job was in no doubt. At the end of August 1899, when he'd been a young man, there'd been a terrible tragedy at the Fields Find Mine near Pinyelling. An accidental dynamite explosion 100 feet underground had blown four men to pieces. One miner's remains were recovered quickly, but the other three were buried when the mine caved in. Excavations took nearly two weeks. Then volunteers were needed for the dangerous and disgusting job of bringing what was left of the miners to the surface. Young Billy Batten had put his hand up. He'd later say, quote, They were plastered on the walls like shadows. But newspaper reports from the time made it clear it was far worse than that poetic image. So Billy Batten knew what he might be in for now. What made this different, though, was that the field's find horror had been an accident. If Walsh and Pittman were down there, beneath that iron, then they'd been deliberately done for and dumped like rubbish. Who could do such a thing? Billy Batten was lowered into the darkness, his mining mate William Morris acting as his braceman and Thomas Kemp working the rope. Even with the lamp, visibility was bad. The air down there was foul and filled with angry flies. Batten would say, quote, The first things that I noticed was a pair of grey tweed trousers, an old battered in furnace and corrugated iron and bags of something. As he started excavating, the miasma became even more unbearable. There were loose items amid tightly packed bags and sacks. Batten didn't think these things had been dropped from above. He believed a man had been lowered and he'd put these items in place before covering them with the iron and being hauled back to the surface. Batten discovered dozens of bits of kit that men used in illicit gold plants. He sent to the surface a circular furnace and a large dish nearly two feet in diameter. There were partly burned bags and sacks of coke and fire bricks studded with splashed gold. The smell was so bad that Batten had to regularly come up for fresh air. When he went back down, he sent up more pieces of plant and tools. Kerosene tins, gold scales and weights, a brace and a bit. With all those things cleared, Billy Batten now found the source of the stench. Decomposing arms and legs. There were also bloodstained sacks. What they contained was worse than anything he'd seen at Fields Find. Worse than anyone could have imagined. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part one of the Forgotten Australia episode Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. Part two will be on general release very soon. A big shout out to Donna Bridges, Michelle Harradine, H. Tam and Alex Damon who've all recently become Patreon supporters. And a big hey there to Jem and Abby, two young listeners. Your dad tells me you love the show and you love learning a bit about our history and hearing that made my day. Thanks again to Greg L for suggesting this episode and also to David Whiteford, archivist with the State Records Office of Western Australia for his assistance in accessing the police files relating to this case. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, 
Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.